Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle. And today I have the privilege of having the first ever live Bonhoeffer podcast interview uh, with Dr. David Robinson. Uh, Dr. Robinson is the postdoctoral fellow in science and theology at Regent College. Um, and he has written the book, Christ and Revelatory Community in Bonhoeffer's Reception of Hegel. Dr. Robinson, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Corey. It's a pleasure to have you here. And um, you're doing a re remarkable service to the scholarly community with this podcast. I'm a subscriber. I really <laughs> enjoyed the episode so far and look forward to our conversation. Yeah, uh, well, that's, that's flattering. <laughs> Again, thank you. My wife and I were just kind of doing a road trip anyway, and we we had the option of Seattle or, you know, we, we had a day to go somewhere um, and we were, we were close by. So we said, I think Dr. Robinson is up at uh, Regent. What do you think about going up there? So yeah, she was down. So I'm glad that we can make it. That's great. And I, I mean, you're already international because you've done America and Germany, yeah. right? So... Does this, yeah. now, does this now include Canada as your third country? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, working my way through the globe. Well, what we usually do uh, is start out with a sort of um, how get to know you section um, and then kind of work through your, your book. Um, so we'll start there. Uh, how did you become interested in Bonhoeffer? Probably college was the time that I had my first serious exposure to Bonhoeffer's writings. Mm -hmm. uh, and like many people, that came through The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. So The Cost of Discipleship first, uh, I think it is significant that in English they add cost of. Of course, in German, it's just discipleship. Mm -hmm. But cost was important to me at that time. I had made the decision, or I was in the midst of making the decision, I should say, of not going to my provincial university and taking up a scholarship and pursuing a career in medicine, which was my high school dream, mm -hmm. but um, had had decided to go instead to a small Christian liberal arts college and do biblical studies and theology. And so I was feeling something of the cost of that, um, or, or foreseeing, I should say, the cost of that. Mm -hmm. But I was also energized by... Um, what there was of worth out in front of me, which Bonhoeffer also shows in discipleship, of course, the person of Jesus Christ, this yeah. compelling alternative ethical vision in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and so cost of discipleship was very helpful in narrating that shift for me. And of course, it was a very uh, powerful experience of community uh, as well. So Life Together spoke to that. I remember the, sesh, the section, especially on confession and forgiveness, being important for me because it spoke to the kind of honest, vulnerable, and freeing encounter between people that I really longed for mm -hmm. in college. So cost of discipleship and life together early on, probably like most of your interviewees, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> will be a sort of start with Bonhoeffer. Now, after that, though, I'm sorry to say that he didn't feature that much in my graduate education. So during my MDiv, I didn't do all too much with Bonhoeffer, although I have to note that at Regent, they did do uh, kind of a one-book um, venture. The student uh, association had the whole college read life together while I was a student. Mm. But um, I didn't, he didn't factor much into my graduate work. But when I became a pastor following that, uh, Bonhoeffer came back into view, 
And it largely happened through a summer course that I took with a German theologian named Bernd Pannenbetsch. And that happened in 2009. He had us read Creation and Fall. So I had exposure to the some of the other works, earlier works. Mm-hmm. Bonhoeffer's well-known exposition of Genesis 1 to 3. Was that, was that here? Uh, was that a that region? That was here, yeah, yeah. That was a summer course. Mm-hmm. So he was a visiting scholar. Um, but he taught that course. And something I especially remember from it was that he argued that ethics can't be read simply off the surface of nature, but have to come as a, a word addressed to us. So he gave us a real theology of the word and did so through Bonhoeffer. Uh, that I found powerful. And all the more so as I returned from that summer course to ministry and tried to come to terms with the social body that the church is. And there's a way in which just as people want to read um, truths about God off the surface of nature, uh, truths about God and humanity, they also want to do so off the surface, so to speak, of religious community mm-hmm. or church community. And there's something that's that's right and true about that, but it can be limiting when you focus on what John Webster calls ecclesiality, or you get into forms of church, church governance, uh, church practices, and they almost become ends in themselves. And you don't have a sense of the externality of the word and how the word of God and the word, the person of Jesus Christ is free and beyond community as well. Mm-hmm. And therefore able to disrupt, we could say, our rationalities, our systems, our ruts, <laughs> mm-hmm. our legalisms, you know, because disruption can be, uh, when I first conceived of it, and the phrase disruption of the word was the title that my PhD thesis had mm. and that I I had before even applying to the PhD. So it was something I wanted to explore was mm. how the, the word of God disrupts, how it um, uh, challenges the status quo, etc. But I did, I did honestly probably conceive of that more as a kind of judgment. So like the prophetic denunciations, the word uh, judges what we have done, mm-hmm. <laughs> shows it wanting. And that is the way that the gospel then enters. But when I did go to Aberdeen, so I started my PhD at the University of Aberdeen to study with this scholar who taught this summer course. So I did four years of pastoring and then... Uh, this question finally became so urgent that I wanted to carry on and pursue it in a PhD. And uh, he was good to to question that picture of disruption as a judgment. So he said, uh, thinking of it in those terms, it's almost so obvious as to be less than true. Because when, when God disrupts, when Christ disrupts the patterns we have, that that can be, perhaps most often is, a grace because it's disrupting our legalisms. It's disrupting our own law-based way of living. That is the difficult way <laughs> and offers us a new freedom and a new grace. So there were kind of these two phases. The one was college and I was working through discipleship and life together. And that was very powerful in terms of the call of Christ and the 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 richness of Christian community. Later on, it became more about the theology of the word and how the word interrupts us. 
and it does so, I think, to free. Yeah. And so Bonhoeffer's thought then carried on from there as I pursued this project. Wow, that's great. You also, I mean, your book is Bonhoeffer's Reception of Hegel. Um, when I first messaged you about coming on and asked you for some resources on, on Hegel, uh, you gave me a list of, of books and you said, I think one of the last ones that you suggested, you said, he makes it easy to grasp someone who is notoriously difficult to grasp. So um, are you a glutton for punishment? How does, uh, <laughs> how does one become interested in Hegel? Uh, thank you. I am a button for punishment. Uh, I, I did, you know, cost of discipleship was my introduction to Bonhoeffer. But the short answer in terms of my interest in Hegel is that it was through Bonhoeffer's thought. So I sort of knew of him before this, but I didn't take an interest in actually doing uh, doctoral work on him until I, I explored what Bonhoeffer meant by disruption of the word. Mm -hmm. So in the epigraph that opens the book, uh, I use a line from Bonhoeffer's Sanctorum Communio where he says, the word is the rock upon which idealist geist monism founders. So I didn't know what idealist geist monism was. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded fascinating. Yeah. But uh, he's saying here that the word is like a rock in a stream and that stream has to be reconfigured because of the word in its way. So he's using an image of disruption here to talk about the word. And I knew that this citation would be a gateway into understanding what it was that was being disrupted by Bonhoeffer's compelling theology of the word. Mm. So uh, I found out that idealism, so idealism is a philosophical movement with which Hegel is associated and he's a towering figure in that. And I believe we'll talk about Geist soon, but uh, Geist becomes a very powerful category for him in his mm -hmm. thought. So when Bonhoeffer says idealist guys, monism, he's talking about Hegel and others, but probably chiefly Hegel. And along with this statement of disruption, Bonhoeffer will also talk about idealism as a form of reason curved in on itself. So he's using there uh, a Lutheran, but also an Augustinian depiction of sin. The mm -hmm. human being is curved in on itself. It takes various forms, the heart curved in on itself, reason curved in on itself. But in any case, you're, you're stuck within yourself. It's kind of a closed system, not open to the word, not open to revelation, not open in a sense to genuine encounter with another. So it's this picture of closure. Mm -hmm. And Bonhoeffer critics have, taken Bonhoeffer's criticism up and largely talked about idealism as self-confinement. So that's the problem with it, as expansive as its scope may appear to be, mm -hmm. and it is an expansive scope. Hegel's output is astonishing and his the range of his intellect is astonishing. Bonhoeffer therefore is kind of ironically saying it's the self-curved in on itself. Mm -hmm. uh, so Hegel, first of all, is a polemical foil for Bonhoeffer. He's someone to argue against. So that's how I initially found him mm -hmm. and found his importance. So I'm thinking, right, I've got a, a PhD to write now and I've got my, my man and I've got his foil. <laughs> yeah. This is important in a thesis, right? Yeah. Yeah. But then I also, digging deeper, noticed that Hegel wasn't only a polemical foil for Bonhoeffer, he was also a creative resource for Bonhoeffer. So the phrase Christ existing as community 
which is very prominent in his first dissertation, Sanctorum Communio, uh, 14 times on one count, he uses that phrase, and the phrase is laced throughout his later work. And it, it's some, a phrase that some critics have taken up and said, this is a, this is a great expression of what Bonhoeffer is about. Mm -hmm. It shows how intertwined his Christology and his ecclesiology are. You can't pull them apart. Uh, Christ existing as community is a, is a great shorthand way of showing what he's doing. And I found out that he got this from Hegel. So it's a variation on Hegel's God existing as community, which comes from Hegel's lectures on the philosophy of religion, which were delivered just over a century before Bonhoeffer. So an interesting thing is that wow. they both lectured at the University of Berlin, Hegel, just over a century before Bonhoeffer. The 1820s especially were the decade in which he was doing these lectures on the philosophy of religion, gave them multiple times. And that's where the provocative statement, God existing as community, comes in. So it's what Bonhoeffer adopts creatively. Now he makes a change, and I think we'll talk about that later, but basically I'm now finding that Hegel is both a polemical foil and a creative resource for Bonhoeffer. Mm -hmm. So who is this guy? <laughs> I need to find out. And I find that a few Bonhoeffer scholars have written about this uh, in English speaking scholarship, Wayne Floyd and Charles Marsh were the two figures that had done some work on this. Um, mm -hmm. And I found them helpful in terms of getting my way in. So they provided a kind of prompt, but I felt there was more to do. And especially more to do in terms of explicating Hegel on his own terms, mm -hmm. which I try to do in the book. Um, but a couple of additional notes. One is that in terms of my interest in Hegel, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, and we're always proud to claim him, <laughs> Uh, he himself, he's well known for his book, A Secular Age, mm -hmm. and in Canada, he's well known for his work on uh, thinking through, leading us in thinking through multiculturalism and how recognition happens between different groups of people. But he has an earlier book, which is arguably bigger than A Secular Age, if you can imagine that, a figure for someone like Charles Taylor. Hmm. Um, who takes seriously a philosophical approach to history and to political reality. So that is a kind of additional note that indicated to me this is an important person to, to study. Um, finally, I'll just mention my interest in Hegel. Probably couldn't have gone much further without Nicholas Adams, who was uh, teaching at Edinburgh at the time. And after beginning in Aberdeen for a complex set of reasons, I had to transfer uh, to a different university, and I was drawn to Adams's work. Uh, his book, Eclipse of Grace, Divine and Human Action in Hegel, is a great single volume for people that are theologically interested readers of Hegel. And uh, Nick became my second supervisor, and we did a, a seminar on the lectures on the philosophy of religion, hmm. which really showed me how Hegel's thought can animate a room. It was a really exciting place to be. And it also gave me some picture of what happened when Bonhoeffer himself led a seminar on Hegel's lectures on the philosophy of religion. So it's maybe little known because it's not in the critical works uh, set. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a very impressive and comprehensive set. But the notes from that seminar aren't included in it. And there's good reason for that. They're fragmentary. They're not necessarily as helpful as some of the other material that has been included but they do exist and uh, i had some small sense of that thanks to adams's leadership and then mm. my colleagues uh, at the university of edinburgh so my interest in hegel <laughs> awesome
I interviewed Dr. Michael DeYoung a couple episodes ago, and we were talking about um, Bonhoeffer's act in being the second dissertation. And kind of the summary of, of what he said was that one of the things, the main point that Bonhoeffer gets at in the way that he explains revelation and act in being is uh, through Dasein. He like modifies Heidegger's mm -hmm. Dasein concept theologically. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm seeing that he's kind of doing this uh, with, with Hegel as well, mm -hmm. um, taking this God existing as in, uh, community and changing it to Christ and kind of taking these well-known theological terms. Um, I didn't plan to ask this, but I, I just, as you were explaining that, I was thinking, do you know any other places in Bonhoeffer's works that where he borrows from these sorts of uh, other philosophers or theologians and modifies their terms to employ what he, he wants? I don't, I don't know if that's throughout or if that's just like the two times that he does No, that. he does that frequently. That's a kind of uh, mode of operation for him. So this partly gets into how it is that he receives Hegel, but he um, he's he's always a theologian first. So he he doesn't try to sign up to a philosophical school, mm -hmm. and that's something that uh, Ralph Pustenberg notes. He's he's not an adherent of any one philosophical school, and the book isn't trying to portray him as Hegelian. Right. Um, it's trying to say that he uh, is a critic of Hegel's, but he also uses Hegel in surprising and creative ways. And sometimes he just adopts Hegel. It doesn't need to modify him mm -hmm. in quite the way. I mean, he's, he's repositioning the, the thought form um, for his own purposes, but he's doing it eclectically. And eclecticism is the word. It's the word used by his student, Frank Lahell, who takes the one of the Hegel seminar with him. He says Bonhoeffer's not overawed by this system. He is an ecclesial theologian, he's confident in his identity, and he uses what he finds uh, creatively to that end. Hmm. And uh, there's a great book, which I'll maybe recommend later, but it, it traces, it's an edited volume, and it traces how Bonhoeffer interacts with a variety of thinkers, hmm. from Friedrich Nietzsche to Wilhelm Dilte. And there you can see the various creative appropriations that he makes wow. um, along the way. That's, that sounds great. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. Can you maybe give someone, the listeners, myself, people who aren't really familiar with Hegel, this is my first interaction with Hegel was reading your book, um, sort of a you know, biography, a, a shortened version of, you know, who, who is Hegel for people who aren't familiar with him. Great, happy to. So first, I'll maybe just give a, a quick word about his thought and then I'll um, tie into his life as well. Uh, so I'll use the words of a, one theologian and one contemporary philosopher. So Kalpar, first of all, is our theologian. He says at one point that um, he wonders whether Hegel would do for Protestants what Thomas Aquinas had done for Roman Catholics. So he accords him quite a high stature yeah. in that sense. He, he thinks that the kind of age of Hegel hasn't quite come. And he's also very critical of some things but he gives him a pretty prominent stature in that way. He also warns us in reading Hegel uh, that you need to be careful about trying to contradict him because he says, well, he says, first of all, think three times before you contradict him because uh, anything you say would likely 
would likely be voiced a little later in his system and given its best possible answer. <laughs> <laughs> so he's kind of there before you in, a, in, a, in an important sense. Uh, the other person to mention then, so there's, there's a theologian's opinion on him. Um, on the importance of his thought and the sophistication of his thought. But a contemporary philosopher and cultural critic, Judith Butler, has also said something important about him, and it informs this study. Butler is doing a study on post-Hegelians in 20th century France. And she says, what does it mean to be post-Hegelian? And this is a question that has some purchase on those that ask what it means to be post-modern, right? I mean, does that mean that you're after modernity? and utterly distinct from it? Does it mean that you're bound to it and in some ways repeating some of its dynamics? Or does it mean both at once? <laughs> and she says, you can't, if you're post-Hegelian, if you're working after him and you're in some ways trying to engage his thought, um, it's almost impossible to break with him because breaking with is a central component of his thought and his dialectic. So. Mm -hmm. Again, before you think that you're kind of free of him, you have to be aware that it's he's um, he's already made that notion of freedom and that notion of breaking with a part of his his thought. Mm. So, a couple preliminary thoughts just on the importance of his philosophical work as a whole. Um, he's profoundly important, and he's not easy to get away from, <laughs> even if you think you have. <laughs> It makes it hard work to wrap up a PhD on him, and I think supervisors tend to dissuade people from working on him early on. But very briefly on his life, because he is a profound thinker, but you can't just take him at his thought. And actually, on this, well, I'll, I'll leave that for the moment, but I begin with a, a juxtaposition of the two monuments erected to Bonhoeffer and Hegel, respectively, and uh, Hegel's monument, which stands behind Humboldt University in Berlin, which is the new name of the university where he taught previously. It's a, it's a, it's a tall uh, pillar with uh, just the bust on the top. So you just really see his head and his name uh, on the mo monument. The only inscription is Hegel. There are no dates, there's no place name, there's no reference to um, anything specific that went on. Mm -hmm. It almost looks like a monument to pure thought. <laughs> <laughs> Contrast that with uh, the monument to Bonhoeffer, which also stands behind Humboldt University. It's just across the street. It has a name of uh, the names of several people. So he's not alone in this monument, but it has each of their, um, their dates. So it has the years that they were alive. And most of them, I think all of them die between 1938 and 1945. <laughs> and there's no facial representation there. Uh, there instead are some iron bars wound in barbed wire and two contorted hands protruding mm. from the sides. And the inscription here reads, to those who fell in the struggle against Hitler's fascism, their death is an obligation to us. So you've got a strongly political monument uh, in Bonhoeffer's case, and a strongly his, historical monument as well, locating him in a certain place, locating his political action in a certain way. His was a life of struggle. When you cross the street and you see Hegel's it's tall stone column, head looking off into the distance, it does seem a monument to pure thought, and it can be tempting to not look into his life as well. 
And in fact, I had one supervisor suggest that I more or less treat him in that way in that he was suggesting uh, with Bonhoeffer that I not deal with his biography, that I just handle his thinking. And I can see the importance of that advice because it's easy to get swept up in the drama Bonhoeffer's life, right? Mm -hmm. Pastor, martyr, prophet, spy. This is a guy who is really compelling life. And it can be easy to excuse some of the maybe missteps in his thought, mm -hmm. maybe the immaturity in his thought at times, because he writes authoritatively, but most importantly, it's backed up by a life that we find utterly compelling. So mm -hmm. we're we're a little more willing to, if we're not necessarily doing hagiography with his life, treating him as a saint, we are reading his work and thinking that his, you know, criticism of people, like his criticism of Hegel, et cetera, that it's, it's pretty much always on point, mm -hmm. you know? So it can be tempting to, I think, uh, maybe subconsciously because of the heroic depiction of his life, treat him as a heroic thinker as well. And someone, uh, that we should follow. Mm. And I think that's true in many respects, but we need to be good independent judges of this. But I'm supposed to be talking about Hegel's life, so let me <laughs> no, get on to that. So uh, very briefly on him, so um, I'll just maybe recommend Terry Pinkard's biography called Hegel. Uh, if people want to go further, it's very good. But uh, he lived from 1770 to 1831. Uh, he was a seminarian at one time, though he never became a minister. And that partly was because he lived with and was good friends with um, someone who became a very famous philosopher and someone who became a very famous poet. So these two figures um, had a significant influence on him. But he also, uh, ministry didn't really take for him. And he has some very critical comments later about the church and its teaching office. And he's always critical of clericalism and this idea of a pastorate that's somehow authoritative in a way that takes away the freedom of the congregation and its rationality. Mm -hmm. So he finds his vocation as a philosopher and as a civil servant in the university, uh, not as a, a church minister, although he has that seminarian training and he has a lifelong interest in theology, therefore. He's a late bloomer to some extent, which is an encouragement to those of us who are coming to academics a little later on. Mm -hmm. uh, he was in his late 30s when he published his first major book, Phenomenology of Geist, in his late 40s when he lands his major university posts, uh, most significantly at the University of Berlin, which had been newly founded around that time. And he was colleagues there with Friedrich Schleiermacher. Uh, and they had a bit of an ongoing feud. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so a lot of his lectures, uh, lecture on the philosophy of religion in particular, um, when he's talking about reason and feeling, he's often got Schleiermacher in view, but they were colleagues at the University of Berlin. Uh, and that's, it's at that university that he gives his major lecture series that we have now copies of, large, many of them from student notes, some from his manuscripts, but his lectures on the philosophy of religion, on the philosophy of history, on the history of philosophy, on the philosophy of world history. They take various forms, but they're pretty expensive in scope, and we have several copies of them. In terms of his major published works, though, uh, Phenomenology of Geist is a, is a major one. His Philosophy of Right is a major text in political philosophy. Science of Logic 
uh, is a big one for analytical philosophy, uh, and one could go on, but those are some main works. In terms of politics, it's worth mentioning that he lived through the French Revolution and Napoleon's incursions into his homeland. Mm. So he um, he knew something of the that change that was happening. And he himself was a reformist, um, although he also had a high view of the Prussian state. So he wasn't calling for revolution, but he was, he did think that the French Revolution provided an opportunity for significant reforms. Mm. Um, he was a civil servant, as I mentioned, so uh, political thing is important. And he was very aware of how his thought was being monitored as well, um, because he saw colleagues who, whose ideas cost them a lot. Um, his notion of history as uh, progressive and as a kind of mounting consciousness of freedom was, was and is significant. And it was significant to I think are like W.E.B. Du Bois, who I talk about a little in the book. Um, a contemporary proponent would be Gary Dorian at Union uh, Seminary, um, who sees idealism and its legacy to be very important for progressive political thinking. Uh, that said, politics, Hegel's politics have often been misrepresented. So he has been taken as a philosopher of totalitarianism. Uh, Karl Popper famously made this charge, 1945. Um, so one has to do some work if you want to talk about Bonhoeffer's reception of Hegel in trying to break the Hegel to Hitler line of interpretation, because that's how some would construe him as a sort of proto-apologist for the Third Reich. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just important to note that although he was a supersessionist, he saw religions kind of coming and taking the place of their predecessors, um, chiefly Christianity and Judaism. He nevertheless argued for the civil rights of Jews and so on. And it's those aspects of his political thought, which I try to draw attention to in the book, mm -hmm. um, again, as a way of showing why it is that Bonhoeffer in 1933 feels that he should look at Hegel again, um, not to exonerate him entirely, of course. Mm -hmm. I'll just end by noting that uh, by his wife Marie's account, his favorite scriptural verse was taken from Matthew, also from the Sermon on the Mount, which we know was very important to Bonhoeffer, mm -hmm. but the verse was, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Fascinating. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> That's no wonder you looked into him. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's get a little bit into your work, your your book that you put out. Um, so Bonhoeffer is obviously a theologian. He is um, at the university, modifying these philosophical terms. It sounds like pretty regularly. Um, so what is his his approach specifically to Hegel? He, he starts out as a theologian. He sees this philosopher that he wants to to kind of pull from and engage with as he as he's writing these. Uh, these dissertations and, and thinking through these things. What's his approach as he lines up with Hegel? Thank you, that's helpful. Uh, so as, as I mentioned, he does a seminar in 1933, and the question is, why did he do that? It's the year that Hitler comes to power. Uh, there are a number of other things he might be doing. Um, I know in previous podcasts, there's been some talk of applied versions of Bonhoeffer, constructive theology in the wake of Bonhoeffer. Why is Bonhoeffer doing an 
expositional seminar of a philosopher who died a century ago. Uh, so one scholar named Jörg Radis, who was completed part of his PhD at the University of St. Andrews, he thinks that the seminar, Bonhoeffer ran the seminar because he was trying to recover something of the German cultural inheritance in a time of crisis. Mm. It's a major time of upheaval and nationalism is surging, but it's also a very um, narrowing picture of what the nation is. And so Radice's opinion is that um, Bonhoeffer was trying to reclaim his cultural inheritance, which can be quite a radical act and quite a threatening act to a new regime, uh, potentially. There may be a simpler explanation, of course, which is that it's not easy to read Hegel alone and you need something of a support group to do so. <laughs> In any case, he runs this seminar. And I've already mentioned the notes taken by Ferenc Lahel, and this is something important uh, as a master's student here to note that um, your professors may be remembered chiefly by the notes you take on them. So in this case, with Bonhoeffer's Christology lectures, with his Hegel seminar, these are largely reconstructed because of student notes. But Lahel himself takes the, the, the opportunity and the preface to his notations uh, to say a few things about how Bonhoeffer approaches Hegel, which I think are instructive and which kind of help me with how I approach uh, this relationship. He says that Bonhoeffer is like an expert in the preservation of buildings. So you can imagine someone who's going in, they're, they're needing to preserve a building. Uh, it's not so much the case here in Vancouver, but when I lived in Ottawa for a time, we had heritage buildings that were often in need of some restoration or repair. And so when someone comes in to do that, uh, what is it they're looking for and how do they approach it? Well, Lahel says, uh, the expert in the preservation of buildings, um, at least the type that Bonhoeffer is, uh, takes most joy in finding the oldest and most valuable parts of that building, rather than getting angry about the flaws. Mm -hmm. So maybe something hasn't been uh, built to last. Obviously, the preserver of buildings has been called in for a reason. But uh, it's more about the joy of finding that which is enduring and that which is valuable, beautiful, perhaps, mm -hmm. than it is about registering anger and its flaws. So if you take Hegel's thought as a, I mean, it's, it's systemic, it's easy to picture as a, a building of, of type, uh, then if Bonhoeffer's coming in and trying to preserve something of it, Lahel says he's more interested in taking joy in uh, what's there that's of worth. Um, so the way that this plays out is, uh, and the building analogy is helpful here, there is an emphasis on the whole. And there's one exchange that Lahel records where a student um, exclaims that Hegel is not a Christian. And Bonhoeffer in reply says, you can't take an author solely on the basis of one problematic statement. You've got to, uh, you've got to see what that author intends with the whole book. So there was a, that was the purpose of the seminar was to really get a sense for the whole, at least of this particular lecture series. And Bonhoeffer says to his students, you need to say both yeah and nein. You have to say both yes and no to Hegel. Uh, it's not about coming to a single settled opinion uh, one way or the other. 
you've got aspects to preserve, aspects to do away with. Right. So it's in, that's partly to play out what I said earlier was uh, an eclectic approach to it. The last thing I'll say very briefly, you mentioned, I'm glad you said that Hegel was a philosopher and Bonhoeffer was a theologian. Some people will take Hegel as a theologian. And there's one book, for example, I think it's a reader that says, that's titled Hegel Theologian of Spirit. And others will say he's trying to reconstruct Christian doctrine. Um, I personally follow Nick Adams on this, who says Hegel is a philosopher first, uh, and his interest in theology is not so much to rewrite doctrine, but it's to explore the forms of thought that doctrine gives us. So what does it mean to think about the Trinity? What does it mean to think about uh, the person of Christ, right? What does Chalcedon do to the way we think? It gets us thinking about uh, entities, let's say human nature and divine nature, that um, we previously thought did not belong together, but mm -hmm. somehow we have to think of them as both distinct and inseparable. And Hegel then takes that and says, distinct yet inseparable. That's a thought form that I want to explore more. Mm. And so he really probes the logic that's at play in these doctrinal forms. Okay. And uh, so I try to depict him as a philosopher first and Bonhoeffer as a theologian first. And Bonhoeffer makes some comments along the way that shows that he respects these disciplinary uh, differences. Obviously, both of them are very interdisciplinary in their way, but it's important, I think, to establish their lo disciplinary locations and distinguish them as a way to ensure we're taking Hegel at what he intended, which I think was a more philosophical, logical work. That makes sense, yeah. And you mentioned that his, uh, his first book was Phenomenology of Geist. Yeah. Geist is a term, as you mentioned, shows up in Sanctorum Communio. What is the layman's term? Geist is, is not a, a word that many of us use in our day-to-day -day -day lives. Yeah, yeah. How, does, how does Bonhoeffer use it? How does Hegel use it? That's great. That's a great way into this. Uh, so I'm glad that it's not a common term, uh, at least in English, um, right. because it's often translated spirit. And that is something we, there's a, there's a mystery to it, but in a sense, we also think we know something about what spirit is. Mm -hmm. um, maybe what spirit is not as well. So I purposefully leave it untranslated in the book because I want to preserve the, the fact that in German, you could translate this really either mind or spirit. Um, an earlier translator, uh, J.B. Bailey, uses mind in translating the phenomenology of Geist. Uh, a recent philosopher like Peter Singer, in his very short introduction to Hegel, uh, uses mind as well. So there's a good argument to be made that Geist be translated mind, although spirit is the much more common translation now. Mm -hmm. But I try to make it strange a little by just leaving it as Geist so that we don't assume either way. My shorthand definition for it, Geist in Hegel, and I'm, I need to probably warn that it's used in very different types of works of his, and there are multiple levels of Geist. So there's, uh, the Volksgeist, the spirit of a people, a mind of a people. There's Weltgeist, world spirit, absolute geist. So it's a whole system one needs to take account mm -hmm. of. But my shorthand definition would be that geist is the social composition of reason. 
So it's how reason is socially embodied and spoken. Uh, the slightly longer definition I have is that it's uh, a rationally actualizing social field. Let me break that down a little. <laughs> rationally, it's a quality of mind. It can be logically expressed. It is reason. It's not mysticism. It's not feeling. So there are certain ways that spirit can maybe be read the wrong way. It's decidedly rational. Uh, it's also actualizing. What I mean by actualizing is that Geist is only as great as its expression. So it has to be uh, instantiated in life. In one of Hegel's uh, famous and controversial statements from the philosophy of right, he says, quote, what is rational is actual and what is actual is rational. In other words, if it's, if it's reason, it has to have an actualization. It has to be efficacious. Mm. It has to work, you could say. It's social, as I mentioned, and in phenomenology of Geist. I'm sort of drawing from different works here to give a, a rough definition. He talks about Geist as the I that is we and the we that is I. So it's it's social. It's a, it's a bond that we have together. It's not just uh, one person's brain, right? Mm -hmm. um, you don't think atomistically. You don't think as a single unit. You always think in, in sociality. And as I'll, as I'll point out in a second, this is what draws Bonhoeffer to his notion of Geist. So it's rationally actualizing social, and I call it a field because that has the meaning both of an area of study, philosophy, etc. It's a field. Uh, but also there's a, a sense of groundedness to it uh, because field can also mean topography. And Hegel has some interesting comments about how land and climate condition thought. And that partly plays into what a Volksgeist would be, the spirit of a people or the mind of a people. So the definition I play out in the book is that rationally actualizing social field uh, or Geist. Now turning to Bonhoeffer, how does Bonhoeffer take Geist and how does he take Hegel's Geist? And here I thought I'd like to just quote a bit from Bonhoeffer and a bit from Hegel at different points, but I thought this would be useful to give a a brief citation here of Bonhoeffer. Uh, this is from Sanctorum Communio. And uh, just for your reference, if you want, sure. it's on page 31 of uh, the book that I quote him. So Bonhoeffer writes, and this is his perhaps most outright appreciation of Hegel and one of his deepest critical points of him. But here you can catch something of what I've tried to give a definition of in terms of Geist and why that appeals to Bonhoeffer. Quote, the tragedy of all idealist philosophy was that it never ultimately broke through to personal Geist. However, its monumental perception, especially in Hegel, was that the principle of Geist is something objective, extending beyond everything individual, that there is an objective Geist, the Geist of sociality, which is distinct in itself from all individual Geist, partly because of his final statement there. You can see that sort of, we're gonna take this part that's valuable, we're gonna reject this error. Mm -hmm. And that's a good indication of the kind of reception he has of Hegel. 
But you can see what appeals to him here is the notion that there's something beyond just uh, a mass of individuals in any community. There's something objective, something beyond uh, those unique individuals. You can't lose sight of the personal and the particular and the unique. That's what he's wanting to correct in Hegel. But he does appreciate the notion of objective Geist for that reason. Mm. Uh, he goes on to react against sociologists who have a fear of Hegel, as he puts it, um, because of this seeming metaphysics that Hegel has of objective Geist. And Bonhoeffer will make two key moves uh, when it comes to objective Geist in this book. One is that he'll tend to locate it most freely in what he calls the primal state or the state um, before sin enters. So mm -hmm. he's quite happy to run with objective Geist uh, and us being caught up in the stream of Geist uh, before the fall. And also in the eschaton, so he, he makes a brief comment, doesn't develop it too much, but a brief comment that the Holy Spirit uh, is the objective spirit in the age to come. But that, that ident identification can't happen before that time. And that's a major point of his disagreement with Hegel is that uh, sinfulness obstructs that kind of association. Mm. And so you can't identify God too closely with objective Christ. And so what he'll do is argue for the word before Geist. And he therefore makes Christ's address to the church, Christ's presence in the church specifically as preaching is very important and as being determinative of the community's objective Geist. So he does a few things to, to take objective Geist and as, as you pointed out, frame it theologically and uh, where necessary modify it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just mention here, Michael Mawson's recent book, Christ Existing as Community, which uh, helps in showing how this uh, concept objective Geist is re-narrated by Bonhoeffer theologically in terms of the primal state, the sinful state, the state of revelation, and so on. Hmm. So I just want to make sure that I, I'm tracking with, yeah, all, with all of this. Um, so the uh, Geist, when I, when I was reading your book, I was thinking, what's a way to kind of understand this in, in my life? And I was thinking, it seems like it's some sort of um, like a culture of the mind, like that there is a there's an individual way of, of rationalizing things. But there's also the you and I way of rationalizing things. There's a, a collective kind of culture of our rational thoughts and, and wills together. And that Bonhoeffer says that um, both the individual version of, of your rational thought, all, all that, and the kind of corporate body of worship, let's say at a church, the, the church community has a, there's like a collective Geist and there's like an individual Geist. Yeah, I mean, if, if you shift to the English for a moment and you say mind, right, yeah. if you talk about um, mind and the individual minds that we have, and then you read something like in scripture where Paul says we have the mind of Christ, mm -hmm. right? So there does seem to be some corporate, and in that case, personal, and Bonhoeffer does make that move to the personal mm -hmm. in Sanctum Communio. 
but there's a way in which, yes, mind is, is both individual and corporate in a sense. So objective mind, we could say, not just subjective mind. Yeah. Um, similar, you can make that similar move with spirit. So you can kind of work with the two English terms and see mm -hmm. how that plays out. But, you know, we use language like the zeitgeist, for example, the spirit of the times, yeah. um, to, to talk something about that cultural movement. But it's an intent to say, again, it's against atomism. It's against uh, a, a highly individualistic depiction. Yeah. And it's an attempt to say there's a, a broader movement at work here. Um, one thing to note, maybe, is that I think that the discussion about Geist is helpful in thinking through why Bonhoeffer doesn't seem to have much of a pneumatology or a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So this is a criticism that's frequently made mm -hmm, of him. Um, I recently heard Rowan Williams give this charge uh, in a lecture in 2017, I think it was. So what's the answer to that? You can go to Bonhoeffer's work and you can find where the Holy Spirit features. Um, and try to say, well, he does have it. Uh, here are the points at which he has it. I think that a, a helpful way to think about this is to see Bonhoeffer as a contextual theologian. He's working, he's working in the wake of this major philosopher who has made Geist a central part of his work. Mm -hmm. And although I think for Hegel, Geist is more about what I call the social composition of reason, he nevertheless does um, draw on the scriptural accounts of the Holy Spirit mm. and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he takes very seriously Jesus's farewell discourses when Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away so that the spirit comes, yeah. the, uh, the paraclete comes. And he says, look, we can't, can't fetishize Jesus. <laughs> yeah. You can't be too stuck on that also because that can lead to a kind of objectivized form of worship where jesus is always up at front at the front on the cross let's just take the example of the crucifix because catholicism is a form of faith that he sees to be very objectivizing mm -hmm. uh he says you can't you can't just put jesus out there in front of you or above you because the spirit now indwells you you have to you have to realize the radical transformation that has happened with the outpouring of the spirit and the implications that has for our human knowing our political life etc so hegel wants to um, talk about the spirit a lot and that has a rational aspect but it, it's not separate from the outpouring of the holy spirit in christian doctrine and so Bonhoeffer's but in doing so, he does tend to marginalize the person of Christ in various ways. Mm. And so Bonhoeffer wants to give Christ great prominence. And sometimes it's, you know, where does Bonhoeffer come up with such a strong Christology? There are political reasons for that. There are a number of reasons for that. I'm not trying to give the reason, but I do think a significant reason is that he's writing after Hegel and he's trying to pronounce the figure of Christ um, after this great philosopher of spirit mind wow all right yeah yeah that makes sense um he also you mentioned it earlier about the god existing as community bonhoeffer takes hegel's god existing as community and and makes it makes it his own i guess um and says 
Christ existing as community. Um, you mentioned it's one of the, the linchpins, I guess, Dr. Lori Brand Hale, her uh, Bonhoeffer for Armchair Theologians, has five sections of the, the main themes in Bonhoeffer's theology. And the first one is Christ existing as community. Mm-hmm. But turns out, borrowed phrase from uh, from Hegel. So uh, how does uh, how does Hegel use it? How does Bonhoeffer use it? Well, it's good. Lori Brand Hale is, is right to give it prominence. It's, it's an important phrase. Um, I'll give maybe two similarities between the two thinkers in terms of the use of this phrase and then a few differences. So in terms of similarities, first of all, uh, they both want to talk about divine presence in and to human community in the closest possible way. So they're mm-hmm. both being provocative with this statement and they're both wanting to say uh, God is present. Christ is present. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them are Lutherans, and so Luther's famous defense of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist is significant for both of them, and Luther insisted on the phrase, this is my body, and the est, the is in particular, so uh, they both are downstream from that emphasis. Um, as a result, certain critics like Oswald Bayer uh, will say that both Hegel and Bonhoeffer, in their own ways, uh, they 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 write divine and human uh, realities so close that they lose the distinction. Hmm. And this phrase is 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 singled out by Bayer as a problematic statement. Um, but they're both trying to talk very seriously and very closely about. Uh, divine and human realities in community. So that would be the first similarity, is that emphasis. Um, and the second would be that for both of them, community is constituted by the practice of confession. So that probably doesn't need to be said uh, or played out too much in Bonhoeffer's case because uh, as is fairly well known from Life Together, he devotes a chapter to it there. Uh, he also at Finkenwalde when he's training ministers, uh, when he's training seminarians between 1935 and 37, he pairs them up so that the, if you're going to train for ministry as a student, you're going to be a confessor to another student and vice versa. So mm-hmm. you're basically going to hear each other's confessions and give each other a word, a word of forgiveness mm-hmm. the whole way. And that's an excellent practice for ministers throughout their lives mm-hmm. to adopt. But it's clear that for Bonhoeffer, confession is important. Maybe less clear that for Hegel, confession is important because he's the philosopher of self-confinement, right? Uh, this is the way critics yeah. have taken him. Uh, idealism is reason curved in on itself. So what could he have to say about confession? Well, he actually gives it quite a prominent place. Uh, if you look at a phenomenology of Geist, for example, he has this... Um, section where he gives actually a very uh, incisive picture of self-enclosure. He calls it the beautiful soul. And it's this state of seeming purity separated out from the uh, uh, political realities of the time, uh, from the probably the entanglements of human relationships, it's judgmental, it's partial, it's one-sided, but it's um, 
it, there's a beauty to it in its kind of separateness. Mm -hmm. But he thinks that the beautiful soul, it's, it's effectively a call to confession for the beautiful soul, that this person learned to speak uh, the partiality of its views, his or her views, mm -hmm. and find a certain release in that confession as he or she speaks it to another person. And both can, in a sense, relinquish their partiality or their one-sidedness and come to a new like-mindedness. And that's where he says, this is in the phenomenology, he, he then talks about the appearing God. So in a way, it's this, when two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. I mean, it's he's not citing that, but there's that kind of a sense when, when two people have this exchange of confession uh, and and forgiveness um, and the new the new form of mind that kind of comes from that uh, is a, a freer and a, an enlarged understanding mm -hmm. so he he takes quite seriously that segment in the lord's prayer about being forgiven as we forgive others and works confession into his account of mind mm -hmm. so both take divine presence in human community very seriously both want to it in the closest possible way and both also see confession as constitutive of community so there are a couple similarities when we were talking about the phrase god or christ existing as community here are three differences between uh, their phrases and these I'll, I'll state as the changes that bonhoeffer makes mm -hmm. So first of all, he changes the subject. This is obvious, it's Christ rather than God, and he always uses Christ. So I, I don't know of a place where he uses God existing as community. And this is partly because Hegel marginalized the person of Christ. Christ was in a sense a passing figure, or he is otherness as being, um, becomes backgrounded to then the spirit as a dwelling community. Uh, Geist also becomes, can take on different forms. So as I mentioned, right, there's Volksgeist, for example, and so on. And it therefore has a kind of polymorphic way, uh, whereas Bonhoeffer really wants to return to that singular figure of Christ for important reasons, especially in his time when Volksgeist meant, uh, was becoming associated with National Socialism. Uh, Bonhoeffer emphasizes the person of Christ addressing the community, present as the community. And by talking about Christ existing as community, he's able to retrieve that Pauline language of the community as the body of Christ. And that importantly for him is a way of um, both indicating the directive head of the body, uh, but also of showing how that is a body marked by suffering. So one of Luther's notes of the church is that it suffers. And in some ways, Hegel is trying to give a new unified state church merger and in some ways leave the suffering of the church for another time. Bonhoeffer clearly is in a state where that, that, that can't be the case any longer, at least insofar as those who were committed to the confessing church saw it. And so by saying Christ exists in this community, he's able to highlight that notion of church as a suffering, rejected, non-recognized social body. Mm -hmm. So Bonhoeffer changes the subject. 
he also, in a sense, changes the scope. So when Hegel says, uses the phrase God existing as community, he's in his section of those lectures that's titled The Consummate Religion. So he's done this, in a sense, history of religions. He's, he's treating them according to their ideas, largely. But he comes to the, the Christian religion, the consummate religion, and he highlights the Lutheran Eucharist. So the communion event is the main event for Hegel because, it, again, it has that closeness, God existing as community. Mm -hmm. um, they receive the real presence, right? It's no longer an objective form. It's not a purely subjective form. This is the moment of you. But Hegel doesn't end in the church, so to speak. He, he does think that the Lutheran Eucharist is a focal point. It shows us maybe in the most intensified or concentrated form, uh, this union, God existing as community. But Revelation needs to unfold for Hegel. And Revelation has an openness about it. And so he himself takes a great interest in academic institutions, in the Prussian state, and so on. And so for him, community, it expands outward. And Bonhoeffer will say this. He'll say that um, it's no surprise that this is in correspondence. But he says there's it's no surprise that Hegel um, kind of the climax of the lectures on the philosophy of religion is the Lutheran Eucharist. He also provides the greatest secularization of this theological truth. So in a sense, Hegel has this ecclesial moment, but he wants to see it expand beyond that. And so he, in a sense, secularizes it. And the real presence goes out beyond uh, church walls, so to speak. Um, Bonhoeffer is much more ecclesial. So in a way, Bonhoeffer's own vocational course, right? He's, he's, he's the civil servant in the university for a time, but uh, that's relinquished and revoked that teaching license. And he, um, he's obviously been involved in the church for some time, but he starts to teach for the church and so on. Uh, and so he's so focused on the church, especially given his initial dissertation, Communion of Saints, that in fact, the translators of the English Bonhoeffer Works um, set translate this phrase for Bonhoeffer, Christ existing as church community. Mm -hmm. So Gemeinde, the German word um, for community there, they take as church community. And I think, I think it's, it's a fair interpretation here, and he often does mean church community. But I just would take care with that, partly because it tends to obscure the allusion to Hegel, maybe all the more. Mm -hmm. But partly also because um, I do think Bonhoeffer has some fairly innovative, and especially over the course of his thinking, ways of thinking about community that need need to maybe not have that interpretation immediately put on it. So mm -hmm. I would just maybe note caution here. Yeah. But I think in general, in general, yes, Hegel has this apparent greater scope to what community should become. Mm -hmm. And Bonhoeffer wants to, and this probably has a lot to say about his time, the time that he's writing, wants to emphasize the, the Christian community um, and reclaim practices like 
the Lutheran Eucharist, the confessions, the preaching moment is a major one for him that Hegel pretty much disregards. Mm. Uh, finally, just maybe briefly, I'll mention the change of act. So although confession is important for Bonhoeffer, in the book, I highlight a key moment where he actually doesn't go for confession when he's when he's giving the attribution to Hegel of this phrase, Christ existing as community. He talks about intercession as the, the act that maybe best shows Christ existing as community. Mm -hmm. And intercession can be a helpful way of thinking about the difference here. Um, with Hegel on confession, there seems to be Hegel seems to be less concerned with how sin can obstruct confession at all. I think there's such a high view of reason that um, one overcomes that and one comes to the other and is able to confess one's narrow-mindedness, etc. But for Bonhoeffer, sin is much more obstructive to community. And he he's also living in a time of, of severe church conflict and separation. So he... Uh, even early on, he'll talk about church unity as, as being true, even in the midst of the sharpest conflict and division. <laughs> so he's doing that dialectical thing where he says, look, it's, it's really evident, even where it seems least evident. Mm -hmm. But for Hegel, that process of confession seems a little less troubled, maybe, than it does for Bonhoeffer. So Bonhoeffer tends to focus on intercession and that notion of standing in the place of another. And so he... He loves those figures like Moses and Paul, who basically put themselves in the place of the community, and they say, and they say to God, basically, wipe me out mm -hmm. <laughs> before you deal with his people. So it's that kind of vicarious representative action, mm -hmm. we can say, that, that really thrills Bonhoeffer. And so he continues, I mean, throughout his life, to see the importance of confession one to another. But he's also, I think, very aware of the times that confession just does not or cannot occur. And intercession becomes a powerful, I mean, is a powerful uh, act for him mm -hmm. that constitutes the community. And of course, that's, that can only be grounded in Christ's um, grounding intercession for us that then we reflect in some way. You mentioned that your uh, your original game plan for your dissertation was about the disruptiveness mm -hmm. of, of Christ. And um, one of my favorite pictures that Bonhoeffer puts forth is this idea of the disruption that Jesus does. It's explained in the book uh, as Gegen Logos mm -hmm. and Mention Logos, mm -hmm. um, which I knew Gagin Logos because I'm a big soccer fan, um, and that's about the only German word I know at the moment. Uh, so Gagin Logos is counter Logos, which is supposed supposed to be Jesus, right? The, the interaction with the, the word. Um, and then mention Logos is the human Logos, right? Um, could you explain kind of the depiction that uh, Bonhoeffer gives of, the, if you want to use the, the German term or English term, either one's fine. But the depiction he gives of um, these two terms, yeah, how how that plays in with Bonhoeffer and Hegel. Sure. So it's helpful probably first to say logos is, of course, a Greek word and Greek philosophical category. So it, we could maybe gloss it as being logos is a kind of rational order to the cosmos. And it's why reality can be thought. It's why the Greek philosophers understood the world as intelligible. Mm -hmm. um, it's, of course, and it may be 
most familiar to listeners as uh, it's used in the Gospel of John, its prologue, right? Mm-hmm. In the beginning was the Logos. And that the author of John is doing cultural engagement. He's aware of this Greek philosophical category and he's trying to speak about this figure of Jesus Christ now in in light of that logos category and mm-hmm. he's trying to reconfigure it as he goes so when bonhoeffer comes to say mention logos gegen logos he's now kind of hybridizing greek and german and he's saying on the one hand you've got the mention logos the human logos human rational categories on the other hand you've got a counter logos so gegen just meaning set over and against or counter uh, and there you've got your dialectic. You've got human reason and you've got a form of counter reason. It's worth mentioning perhaps that it bears some resemblance to Hegel's master-slave dialectic where two figures um, with an imbalanced power relationship obviously uh, basically fight to the death. But they mm-hmm. pull back from the point of death and there's actually a reconfiguration of that power relationship. When Bonhoeffer does it, this is the Christology lectures that he does this. Mm-hmm. He has the mention logos and the gegen logos fight to the death, except the mention logos kills the gegen logos. So he's obviously drawing on the crucifixion account there. Um, but this is, he's here thinking about thought forms and he's saying that the human basically system of classification and rationality kills that which comes against it. Mm-hmm. But the Gegen Logos, and again, it's, it's Christ that he's speaking mm-hmm. about, um, rises again and confronts the mentioned Logos yet again and can't be denied. So it's a confrontational picture, right, of how yeah. the word disrupts human thought patterns and how resistant human thought patterns are to being countered. So this is disruption of the word. Wow. Now, Bonhoeffer locates Hegel in the mentioned Logos, so in the Christology lectures, which, again, they're given in that same period that he's doing the Hegel seminar. So Mm -hmm. he's drawing on this, but he names Hegel in the lectures. Um, You can read them and see that. Uh, Because he, he basically thinks that Hegel, for all his sophistication, still thinks human ideas about what God is and what humanity is. Um, They're sophisticated, but they're not they don't begin in the living active person of Christ who confronts us partly because they preconceive of what human is and what divine is. Mm. So before talking about the God mensch, before talking about the God human one, uh, it talks about what human is and what God is. And that, that would seem to be natural for a lot of theologians. I mean, you have the, at least in, in Christian thinking, you have the Old Testament before you have the New. So before you have Christ, you actually have a record that gives us something about what humanity is, the image of God, something about who God is as well. Mm-hmm. And if you do something like what Hegel is doing in the lectures on the philosophy of religion, you actually look at a longer history of human religious forms. And so you see ideas about God, ideas about what the human is. And when you later get to this one who is claimed to be the divine and human one, you actually have your sense of what divine and human are. And Bonhoeffer would say, 
no, that's mentioned logos you're doing, right? You, mm -hmm. you, you're working with a human rationality here. So um, that's one thing to note about Hegel. The second thing to note about Hegel is that he is a Christian philosopher and he does try to have Christian doctrine uh, condition his thoughts. So he talks about, he uses the theology of the cross. He'll talk about the Golgotha of absolute Geist. Um, he'll talk about thought that empties itself. He clearly uses uh, Trinitarian thinking in a major way. He's, he's one of the reasons for the great Trinitarian Renaissance in the 20th century, I think. Um, so he, he tries to do this, but Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer is a harsh critic. He, he thinks that that whole idea of a kind of cross-formed philosophy or cruciform philosophy is a kind of self-negation rather than something done to the thinker. Hmm. So he still thinks that Christ has to be that agent that's doing it to the thinker rather than in some way the thinker doing it to, the, to his or herself. Mm -hmm. So um, whether Bonhoeffer's fair in that or not, I mean, you can see what I think in the book, but uh, that's how he places Hegel as mentioned logos. So Hegel's also susceptible or almost irrational. Yeah. And there might be strands in Bonhoeffer that seem voluntarist or, or seem to emphasize the will and the freedom of Christ uh, without and in a way that destroys rational categories and reason. Right? Mm -hmm. And there is that aspect of him, but it's worth noting that's not the reading I take of it. So I wouldn't translate this anti-reason, I'd translate it as counter-reason, because I do think it is a form of reason, partly because Bonhoeffer goes on in those lectures to say Christ is the hidden center of Wissenschaft or science, mm -hmm. and science there in a broad sense of learning, or I think the Bonhoeffer works calls it scholarship, something like that. But if Christ is the hidden center of scholarship, there's a way in which this is a, a form of reason. It's just a, a counter form of reason. It's a new way to think that first has to confront every human way to think uh, and open up new possibilities. That's so great. That's uh, one of my favorite out of all of Bonhoeffer's works that that picture is one of my favorites. It's, it's almost like a science fiction novel or something like that, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So powerful. Um, thank you so much for your time. We'll end with one last question, which is uh, tradition here on the podcast. Little game of Desert Island. If you're trapped on a desert island, you get one book by Bonhoeffer, one secondary source on Bonhoeffer. So it's theology, um, a biography, you're choosing something like that. And then uh, since since you did Bonhoeffer's reception of Hegel, I'll, I'll throw, I'll, you'll be the first to have a third book on, on the island. Uh, one book of your choosing on or by Hegel as well. Oh, what do you an think? expanding library, that's yes. great. <laughs> all the better. And all the more reason for maybe yourself and maybe other students to do reception accounts that uh -huh. are really enjoyable to do. Uh, so for me, let me, let me maybe start with Hegel. So uh, I'll do, I'll pick Phenomenology of Geist, mm -hmm. partly because it's long and complicated, <laughs> and I'm going to have a lot of time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, without much variation in the scenery, I think that a book on the wonders of the mind would be, or the wonders of mind, would be uh, just the thing. Um, I also think it, you know, it, as I've mentioned, it, it cautions against the dangers of the beautiful soul and kind of self-enclosure. So I think those... Uh, warnings will be well taken um, <laughs> yeah. given my isolation and uh, longing for 
and a social exchange of reason that can happen. But I mention that also because there's a great new edition of it out. It's a new translation uh, by Terry Pinkard. It's a German parallel edition. It's put up by Cambridge Press, so I want to plug that a little bit as yeah. well. But um, that would be the Hegel book I would take. And then in terms of the Bonhoeffer one, so he's more difficult to choose. And I've noticed on the podcast that your guests seem to, I mean, this is scholars, right? But they think yeah. they can negotiate everything. So I think they can maybe, <laughs> even though it's a Dejan, even though I've been told only one and one, I'm still going to make you. <laughs> but I'm going to try to keep it to one and okay. one. So let's All see right. here. I'll start with a secondary source, and that would be the collection uh, Bonhoeffer's Intellectual Formation that came out in 2008 with Morrissey Beck. And it's part of the reason I did the project I did. Um, it's part of the reason I wanted to publish with Morrissey Beck was because of this volume, because it does a kind of series of reception accounts. And Wayne Floyd's essay on uh, Bonhoeffer's basically treatment of Kant and Hegel is in there. And that became a big impetus to this project. But you get access to major intellectual figures like Martin Heidegger, Friedrich Nietzsche, and others. And you, you get these essays done by leading interpreters of Bonhoeffer's thought. So it's, it's a really good volume that I want to give credit to and that I would enjoy reading because um, I'm a hopeful guy and I'm thinking that <laughs> My time on the desert island is not going to be lifelong. I'm going to be right. rescued. So I'm particularly interested in uh, Christiana Tietze's essay on uh, Schleiermacher, Bonhoeffer and Schleiermacher, because I'm preparing a paper for the American Academy of Religion this November. I'm trusting I'll be rescued by then. And <laughs> uh, it's a paper on their respective ecclesiologies. So wow. this book continues to be generative for me. And I hope that it might inspire also some students to do this kind of fuller reception account of some of these figures that obviously in a book like that, you only get an initial essay. Mm. So I think it's a generative book. Um, for Bonhoeffer's primary source. So I'm going to pick uh, volume 12 in the works edition, which is Berlin 1932 to 33. And the nice thing about, of course, this magnificent set of editions that uh, the previous generation of Bonhoeffer scholars worked so hard on is that you get quite a well-rounded picture of these periods. So part one gives us letters and part three gives us sermons. And I think both of those genres would be um, perfect mm -hmm. in my new context. <laughs> but also it has the lectures on Christology. So you get that dynamic picture of the Christ who is present and the Christ who is for me. You also get, I think his polemical essays about the church uh, in that period are so important. And some of the side projects I got to do uh, while doing this project uh, dealt with these essays. So I co-wrote a paper with a very good scholar of Paul Althaus's work in Ryan Tafalowski, where we looked at how Bonhoeffer saw nationality in the pastorate. And so his essays on the church and the Jewish question, his thesis against, theses against the Aryan paragraph, mm. some of his confessional work, I find it very inspiring polemical work. And again, thinking that I'll be released or rescued, uh, I, I love that energizing political essayist part. Of yeah. So those, those are my choices, but I, I just will say that those, those are my choices on the hope that I'll be rescued. Yeah. If I'm, 
assured I'm going to die there, and you haven't been that severe with me today. No. But if that is the case, I would have to go with letters and papers from prison and Baker's biography. Those would be my choices if this was it for me. Yeah. But uh, there's my more hopeful condition, <laughs> and those are the books I would choose on my desert island. That's so great. Awesome. Well, thank you for uh, providing those. And, and just thank you so much just for your book. It's, it's excellent. I mean, it's, I, I, as I was reading through it, I could not imagine the amount of work that went through the, to, to producing this. So well done. Um, it's, you know, it's quite the contribution to Bonhoeffer scholarship. So I, on behalf of the Bonhoeffer community, thank you. Lastly, is there any, uh, so if anyone has any further questions or anything like that, where can they find you on your own, your own social media, Twitter, anything like that, or email? Uh, yes. Well, let me say that um, maybe first of all, because we're at Regent College and we have what I think is one of the best theological bookstores in the world, I would just make a plug for, you know, ordering for Regent bookstore yeah. or your local bookstore. Uh, that would be the best place to find the work. Um, in terms of, Social media, yes, I'm on uh, Twitter. So the handle is at David Scott, S-C-O-T-T-R. So David, my middle name and first initial. Uh, my email as well, uh, drobinson at regent-college.edu, or you can just search me on the Regent College uh, faculty profiles. I'd be very happy to talk about um, questions related to this work. And I'm always happy to support uh, students like yourself who are uh, working in on Bonhoeffer scholarship. I, I know this has been said by previous guests on the show, but it is a, it is a wonderful scholarly community. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd be happy to correspond with um, some new member of that community, perhaps. Uh, and thank you again, Corey, for your work on the show and for this great conversation today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast. And thank you to Dr. Robinson for coming on. He was very hospitable and we had a great time together. You can find Dr. Robinson's book that we discussed today wherever books are sold, and specifically the bookstore at Regent College, as he mentioned. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review in your podcast app. It will help others find the show. We should be back in August with another episode that I'm really looking forward to, and I think you will enjoy it as well. Until then, thanks for listening.